Why is seminary so expensive? At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are committed to the reform of theological education toward meeting the needs of churches across the globe. Men of God cannot serve their churches well if they are burdened with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans from seminary. At CBTS, you can receive a robust theological education for nearly four times less than other institutions. To find out more about how you can receive an accredited theological degree at a cost that you can afford, visit cbtseminary.org. Welcome to the narrated Puritan portion of the Man of God podcast. Before I read this next chapter from a book that was published in the year 1814, I want to read something from the life of Jonathan Edwards in his biography. It's a story about his uncle. His name was Joseph Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y, the second who committed suicide in the midst of the great revival that took place in Northampton in 1734 and 35. This narrative puts the type of spiritual depression that John Colquhoun is talking about. Colquhoun was a student of Thomas Boston, and many of his works are very, very helpful. If you listen to this introduction, then you'll understand the medicine that he is trying to apply to those who are under the disease of spiritual melancholy. Jonathan Edwards wrote, When this work of God appeared to be at its greatest height, a poor weak man who belongs to the town being in great spiritual troubled, was hurried with violent temptations to cut his own throat and made an attempt but did not do it effectually. He after this continued a considerable time exceedingly overwhelmed with melancholy, but has now for a long time been very greatly delivered by the light of God's countenance lifted up upon him, and it's expressed a great sense of his sin and so far yielding to temptation, and there are in him a hopeful evidences of his having been made a subject of saving mercy. In the latter part of May it began to be very sensible that the Spirit of God was gradually withdrawing from us. And after this time, Satan seemed to be much more let loose and raged in a dreadful manner. The first instance wherein it appeared was a person putting an end to his own life by cutting a throat. He was a gentleman of more than common understanding, of strict morals, religious in his behavior, and a useful and honorable person in the town, but was of a family that are exceedingly prone to the disease of melancholy, and his mother died by it. He had, from the beginning of this extraordinary time, been exceedingly concerned about the state of his soul, and there were some things in his experience that appeared very hopeful, but he dared not entertain any hope concerning his own good estate. Towards the latter part of his time, he grew much discouraged, and melancholy grew again upon him till he was wholly overpowered by it, and was in a great measure past the capacity of receiving advice, or being reasoned with to any purpose. The devil took the advantage and drove him into despairing thoughts. He was kept awake at nights, meditating terror, so that he had scarce any sleep at all for a long time together, and it was observed at last that he was scarcely well capable of managing his ordinary business, and was judged delirious by the coroner's inquest, quote. And now you'll properly understand the next chapter by John Colquhoun. It is in a book called A Treatise 
on spiritual comfort and was recently published yesterday to onthewing.org. The following chapter is taken from a book called A Treatise on Spiritual Comfort by John Cahoon. The nature and signs of spiritual melancholy with directions for those believers who are afflicted with it. Melancholy. Though it so weakens and disorders the mind is to render a person unable to enjoy the comforts and to perform the duties of life. It is nevertheless seated in the body, but the state of body which accompanies this disease is acknowledged by the best physicians to be in general beyond the reach of their investigation. By this distemper the mind is so disordered that, like an inflamed eye, it becomes disqualified for discerning its objects clearly and justly. The disease is commonly attended with gloomy thoughts, heaviness, sorrow and fear, without any apparent cause of them. Wicked men are as liable to be afflicted with it as good men. In the case of some, though it is a bodily distemper, melancholy produces dejection of mind. In others, trouble of mind on spiritual accounts, especially if it is great or of long continuance, produces a disease of melancholy in the body. Melancholy also increases trouble of mind, and trouble of mind again increases melancholy. Where they both exist together, they mutually increase and confirm each other. However great a believer's grief for sin and his dread of divine anger may be, he should not be called melancholy so long as these appear to be rational and his imagination appears to be sound. On the other hand, however, small his measure of sadness and fear may be, if his imagination and mind are so distempered or impaired that he cannot assign a proper reason for his sadness and fear, nor express them in a rational manner, he is to be counted melancholy. Now when a good man is at any time afflicted with his grievous distemper, it will usually reveal itself by more or fewer of the following signs. 1. Signs of melancholy, especially in a true Christian, a holy man when he is under this mournful disease, commonly gives himself up to excessive grief. He often weeps without knowing why, and thinks that he ought to do so. And if he but appears to smile at any time or to talk cheerfully, his heart strikes him for it, as if he had done amiss. He is usually exceedingly timorous or full of groundless fears. Almost everything that he sees or hears of serves to increase his dread, especially a fear as is often the case, has been the primary cause of his melancholy. If this distemper is not deep, sadness and fear commonly seize him at intervals. He is seized with fits of them for a part of a day, or for a whole day, or even for several days together. And after some short abatement of them, they return to him, and he feels them again fastening on his spirit without knowing why. Through the distemper of his imagination, he is disposed to aggravate his sin or misery or danger. He is ready to speak with horror about every common infirmity or fault, as if it were an atrocious crime. Every ordinary affliction he considers as utterly destructive. Every small danger is a great one. Every possible danger is probable, and every probable danger is certain. He often thinks that his day of grace has passed, and that now it is too late for him to believe, or to repent, 
or to expect mercy, were anyone to declare to him that redeeming grace is infinitely free, or that the riches of saving mercy in Christ are always overflowing, or that the offers and calls of the gospel are directed to him in particular, he would still affirm that it is now too late, because his day of grace has undoubtedly passed. No arguments will convince him that, concluding his day of grace is past, or that God will never show mercy nor give grace to him, while God is yet continually beseeching him to accept his offers of grace and so be reconciled to him, is an unbelieving suspicion that God of truth is not sincere in his offers, and it is most sinful attempt to make him a liar, 1 John 5, verse 10. The Christian, dejected as he is, should seriously consider how atrocious, how reproachful, how dreadful the sin of unbelief is. He is perpetually apprehensive that it is utterly forsaken by God and is always prone to despair. Like someone who is forlorn and desolate, his continual thought is that he is undone, utterly undone. But he certainly ought to consider that sinners who are utterly forsaken by God are habitually willing to continue in their sinful state and frame. They are lovers of sin, haters of holiness, and so far as they have power and opportunity, persecutors of all who would reform them, as if they were enemies to them, which is far indeed from being his case. He frequently takes occasion from the doctrine of predestination to despair of divine mercy, and so he abuses that great and fundamental doctrine, perceiving every object if through a colored and distorted medium. He thinks that if the Lord has not elected him, it would be altogether in vain for him to ever attempt believing and repenting. And then he strongly imagines that he is not elected, and therefore it cannot be his duty to hope for the mercy of God. But he would do well to recollect that all whom God has predestined to the end, he is also predestined to the means to that end, that in choosing sinners to salvation, he has chosen them to faith and repentance, not only as means, but as necessary parts of salvation, and that it is his present duty on the warrant of the unlimited offer of the gospel to choose Christ for his Savior, and God in him for his God, and to immediately trust in them for all the parts of salvation. This would be a comfortable evidence to him in the meantime that God has chosen him, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13, to trust in the Lord Jesus for all his salvation, and to repent of all of his sins in the faith of the mercy offered and promised in the gospel, are the way to know that he has been elected to faith and repentance, as well as to every other part of salvation. He always asserts that he cannot believe, and hence he concludes that he cannot be saved. If any Christian friend exhorts him to come as a sinner to the compassionate Savior, and to trust in him for salvation, to himself in particular, he is ready to reply, Alas, you seem to understand nothing of my doleful condition. Otherwise, he would deny exhort such a vile and unworthy sinner as I am to trust that Holy One of God would ever save him. Indeed, it would be daring presumption in someone like me to ever attempt trusting in him. I dare not. I will not. I cannot confide in him, against whom I have so heinously sinned. His distemper, so far as it prevails, will not permit him to exercise faith. This is a dreadful chastisement, for his having omitted the great duty of trust in at all times in the only Savior, 
when his imagination was still sound. He is at the same time utterly unable to exercise joy or to take comfort in anything. He cannot comprehend or so much as think of anything which is suited to comfort him. When he reads or hears the dreadful threatenings of the violated moral law, it is always with application to himself. But when he reads or hears the precious promises of the blessed gospel, either takes no notice of them or he says they don't belong to me. The greater the mercy of God and the riches of his grace are, the more miserable I am who has no part in them. He looks upon his wife, children, friends, house, wealth, and all without the least comfort. As a man would do who is going to suffer the most tormenting death for his crimes, he is like a man in continual sickness or pain, who cannot take pleasure in anything around him, because a feeling of his incessant pain prevents him. He never hears or reads of any dreadful example of divine judgment without quickly imagining that it will soon be his own case. If he hears of Cain or Pharaoh given up to hardness of heart, or if he but reads that some are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, or that they have eyes and do not see, ears and do not hear, hearts and do not understand, he thinks that this is his very case, or that all is spoken of him. If he hears of any tremendous judgment inflicted on someone, he concludes it will also be executed on him. If he is told that some person has become distraught, or has died suddenly, or died in despair, he quickly thinks that it will be so with himself. The reading of Francis Spira's dreadful condition has, I believe, increased melancholy in many. The ignorant author described a case of the plainest and deepest melancholy, contracted by means of mental trouble arising from a sin committed against conscience, as if it had been the rational despair of a sound understanding. He persuades himself that none was ever in such a dismal condition as his, although he is ever so often told that many of the saints have been in this very case. He still persists in saying, Never was anyone's case like mine. His conscience is usually quick in charging himself with sin, and presenting to his view the infinite punishment which he deserved for his sin, and in urging him on to still greater dejection of mind as his duty. But he seems dead to all the duties which directly tend to his consolation, such as praising the Lord, thanksgiving for manifold mercies, meditating on the glorious Redeemer and on the love, grace, and promises of God. If you press these duties and similar ones ever so frequently upon him, and he will make no conscience of them. He will regard them as duties for others, but not for him. He is always displeased and discontented with himself, just as a peevish or forward person is apt to be with others. Is such a man hard to please? Is he ready to find fault with everything which he sees or hears of? And is he offended with everyone who comes in his way? Just so is a melancholy man with respect to himself. He is always suspicious of himself always finding fault, always displeased with himself. His thoughts, for the most part, are turned inwardly upon himself, like millstones which grind on themselves when they have no grain between them. His thoughts are usually employed on themselves. When he suspects that he has thought irregularly, he thinks again and again of what he has already been thinking. He doesn't usually meditate much on God, except on his terrible majesty, justice, and wrath nor in Christ, 
heaven, the state of the church, nor indeed on anything outside himself. His thoughts are all abstracted and turned inward upon himself, and are such that they tend not to alleviate but rather to increase his perturbation. His musing on himself is chiefly that he may perceive the working of Satan in himself, that he may find in the depravity or infirmity of his nature as much of the hateful image of that wicked one as he can, but the holy image of God in him he forwardly overlooks and will not acknowledge. Noble objects of thought raise a soul. Amiable objects kindle love in it. Cheering objects fill it with delight. And God in Christ, who possesses every excellence, elevates, perfects, and makes a soul happy, whereas mean objects of thought debase it, Loathsome objects fill it with disgust, and mournful objects impress it with sadness. Therefore, fixing his thoughts incessantly upon his depravity and misery cannot fail to increase the sadness of his spirit. He commonly gives himself up to idleness, either lying in bed or sitting unprofitably by himself. He is much averse from labor, especially from the work of his usual calling. At the same time, he is daily harassed with fears of want, poverty, and misery to himself and his family, and sometimes even of imprisonment or banishment. He is often afraid that somebody will murder him, and if he but perceives anyone whispering to another or winking an eye, he quickly suspects that they are plotting to take his life. He is weary of company for the most part and much addicted to solitude. His thoughts are commonly all perplexed, like those of a man who is in a labyrinth, or pathless wilderness, or has lost his way in the dark. He is continually pouring and groping about, and can make out nothing, but he is bewildered and entangled all the more, and he is full of perplexing fears out of which he cannot find a way. He is ordinarily endless in his scruples, afraid lest he sin in every thought, Every word, every look, in all the food that he eats and in all the clothing that he wears, and if he resolves to amend his ways, he is still scrupulous with regard to his designed amendments. He dares neither speak, nor be silent, neither travel, nor stay at home, but he scruples everything as if his conscience were wholly enslaved by self-perplexing scruples. Hence it comes to pass that he commonly addicts himself to much superstition. He makes laws for himself which God never made for him. He ensnares himself by unnecessary resolutions, vows, and austerities. He places much of his religion in outward self-imposed tasks, such as spending so many hours of every day in this or that act of devotion, to wear such and such clothes and forbear others that are fitter for him to forbear all sorts of food to please the taste, and similar things. He has lost the power of governing his thoughts by reason. If a Christian friend exhorts him ever so earnestly and frequently to forbear his unprofitable self-perplexing thoughts and to turn his mind to cheering objects, he is unable to comply. He seems to be under a necessity to think anxious and distracting thoughts. He cannot turn his mind away from gloomy and frightful ideas. 
He cannot meditate on redeeming love, grace, or mercy. He can no more cease to muse on what is already the subject of his thoughts than a man afflicted with a violent toothache can forbear at the time to think of his pain. Hence, he usually becomes incapable of engaging in private prayer or meditation. When he tries to pray or meditate, all the thoughts are quickly thrown into confusion. He cannot fix or keep them on any object outside himself or a distempered and confused imagination with a weak reason which cannot govern it is a very disease with which he is afflicted. Sometimes terror drives him from prayer. He dares not hope, and therefore he dares not pray, and usually he lacks the courage to receive the Lord's Supper, if at any time he is prevailed on to receive it. He is quickly filled with dread fearing that by partaking unworthily he has eaten and drunk judgment to himself. The consequence is that he begins to feel an uncommon degree of averseness from religious exercises. Hence he rashly concludes that he is a hater of God and of holiness, imputing the effects of his bodily distemper to his soul, while yet he would rather love God and be holy than to have all the richest honors and pleasures in the universe. Strictly speaking, he is averse to the renewed perplexity and terror which he experiences in those exercises, rather than the duties themselves. For he still desires to have that calmness of spirit, that confidence and delight in the Lord Jesus, which he would be glad to express by prayer and praise. Here we ought to distinguish between that degree of averseness which is so predominant as to habitually and entirely overcome holiness in the soul, and that degree which indeed strives vehemently against it, but does not overcome it. Every holy man has some degree of backwardness to spiritual exercises remaining in him, but if this had dominion over him, he would willingly abandon them, which he is far from being permitted to ever do. However, when he is under melancholy, he may still be so deterred from some external duties as to give them up for a time. Many real believers have, for a season, been deterred from receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Some of them, when under deep melancholy and strong temptation, have even given up outward prayer and the hearing and reading of the Word of God. And yet they haven't lost their desire for holiness, which is inward prayer, nor their desire to believe, love, and obey the gospel. He is commonly occupied very much with eager and conflicting thoughts now and then feels as if something were speaking within him, and as if all his own violent thoughts were the impulses and pleadings of another. He therefore frequently attributes his irregular fancies either to some extraordinary motions of the Holy Spirit, or even to some uncommon agency of Satan. He often uses such expressions as these, It was impressed on my heart, or it was said to me that I must do thus and thus, and soon afterwards I was told that I must not do this or that. He conceives that his imagination is something talking within him and saying to him all that he is thinking of. Hence he becomes intractable and very obstinate in adhering to his own conceits. It is with the utmost difficulty that he can be persuaded to relinquish any one of them, however irrational. At the same time he becomes peevish and forward. It is easy to offend him and difficult to please him. It is seldom that the most convincing argument or the best advice does him any good. 
even if pressed upon him in the most affectionate and attractive manner. If a Christian friend tries to persuade him that he has some evidences of a work of grace begun in his soul, and succeeds so far as to lessen the dejection of his mind in a small degree, yet as soon as he again views his heart to life through the medium of his perturbing humors, every such argument and advice is forgotten, and he is far from serenity of mind as ever. Any encouraging thought about a state to which someone can be the means of helping him seldom continues more than a day or two. When his melancholy becomes deep, he is almost constantly troubled with hideous and blasphemous temptations against God or Christ or the Scripture or the immortality of the soul. These arise partly from his own fears which make him think most about what he is most afraid to think about. The very uneasiness occasioned by his fears attracts and confines his thoughts to what he dreads. Like someone who is overly desirous to sleep and fears that he will not sleep, he is likely to continue awake. This is because his desire and fear keep him awake. So the fears and anxieties of someone who is melancholy counteract themselves. But these temptations arise chiefly from Satan, who sees in the opportunity of the Christians being under that disease, vexes him, and tempts him to blasphemous thoughts. For just as that crafty and malicious enemy of the saints knows that he can tempt a melancholy saint to unbelieving, despairing, and blasphemous thoughts more easily and successfully than any other saint, so when permitted he will be sure to vehemently instigate such thoughts. It's a good man when he is under strong melancholy often feels as if something within him were forcibly urging him to utter some blasphemous or sinful expression and he can have no rest unless he yields to the temptation. But no sooner does he yield than he is tempted to utterly despair because he has committed so heinous a sin. And when Satan has gained its advantage over him, he still sets it before him to increase a man's dejection of spirit. It is surprising what extraordinary acuteness a Christian will reveal under this grievous distemper in evading the force of the strongest arguments that can be urged for his comfort. But I believe that Satan on such occasions is permitted to suggest his answers to him and to assist him in setting him in the strongest possible light. Upon the tempters gaining that advantage over him, he further prompts a man to conclude that he has been guilty of the sin against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. This increases his despair of mercy. The man who indeed commits that horrible sin must be a professed infidel, and that is in opposition to confessed miracles. And yet the melancholy believer despairs because he dreads that he has committed that sin. Yet perhaps he never understands what it is, nor has any reason but his own groundless fear, or some blasphemous temptation which he abhors for imagining that he has been guilty of it. Alas, he doesn't consider that a temptation is one thing, and a sin is another, and that no man has less cause to fear that he will be condemned for his transgression than someone who abhors sin most and is least willing to commit it. For no man can be less willing to commit iniquity than the Christian afflicted with melancholy is to be guilty of those blasphemous and hideous thoughts which he bitterly complains of. When a good man under deep melancholy has long been harassed with suggestions to blasphemy and despair, he at length begins to dread that he is possessed by Satan. A man may be said to be possessed by Satan when that enemy is at any time permitted to exercise in a certain measure his power on him. 
and that is by a stated and effectual operation either on his soul or on his body. The devil thus possesses the souls of the ungodly, Ephesians 2 verse 2, but he is never permitted for a single moment to thus possess those of the saints. But though he cannot possess the souls of any of the saints, yet, as in the case of Job, he may be allowed to possess for a season the bodies of some of them. He may perhaps, in the hand of the Lord, be an instrument of inflicting on them, among other distempers, the disease of melancholy. And by harassing them with horrible and despairing suggestions, he may also be an instrument of increasing that grievous disease. But let it still be remembered by the dejected believer that Satan's exercising for a season such power on the body as may be termed possession of it is no sign at all of an unregenerate state, nor of his having gained possession again of that soul from which he had been cast out in a day of regeneration. Still, however, as this malicious and cruel enemy often raises a storm of persecution against the Christian from without, so in proportion to the Lord permitting him, he is likewise producing trouble within. It should also be regarded by the disconsolate saint as a manner of unspeakable comfort that of all men, none loves a sin under which he sighs less than he does, for it is the heaviest burden of his soul. And no sin suffices Satan possession of a soul except that which the man loves more than he hates and which he would rather keep than forsake. The melancholy Christian should likewise, for his encouragement, recollect that God will charge his temptations only upon Satan himself, and in no way upon himself, so long as he does not receive them by the consent of his will, but continues to abhor them, and recollect that God will no more condemn him for those evil effects which, being produced by the force of a bodily disease, are unavoidable, then he would condemn a man for raving thoughts or words in a strong fever or delirium. Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. But so far as reason in a dejected Christian still has power, and has his understanding, and the government of his passion, it is doubtless his own fault if he does not exert himself in using that power even though the great difficulty of using it renders his fault less. If his melancholy becomes very deep, the dejected believer often imagines that he hears voices and sees lights and apparitions, or that something meets him and says this or that to him, when all this is but the error of a diseased imagination and an impaired intellect. In consequence of the continued and harassing perplexity of his mind, under strong melancholy, the dejected Christian becomes weary even of his life. Some under deep melancholy are strongly tempted to make away with themselves. They are assaulted with the temptation so incessantly and so forcibly that they can go nowhere without feeling as if something within were vehemently instigating them and saying, Do it. But the grievous disease under which they labor will permit them to feel nothing but anguish and despair and to say nothing but that they are forsaken and miserable and undone. It not only makes them weary of their lives, even while they are sorely afraid to die, but it affords Satan a special opportunity to urge them to destroy themselves, so that if they happen to be crossing a bridge by themselves, he urges them to leap into the water. If when alone they see a knife or any other destructive weapon, he instigates them to kill themselves with it and they usually feel as if something within them were importunately urging them, saying, Do it. 
do it instantly. Hence, some of them begin to secretly contrive how they may accomplish it, even yielding to the importunity of the tempter so far as to actually destroy themselves. This undoubtedly would be self-murder, were it not that the doleful distemper under which they labor so impairs their understanding is to render them incapable of resisting the horrible temptation at the time. The use of the means for the preservation and recovery of Christians afflicted with melancholy belongs so much to others connected with them as to themselves. Yet so far as it is possible for themselves to exercise a reason, they must be warned one to abhor all such temptations and not to give way to them for a moment in their minds. 2. To carefully avoid all occasions of yielding to them, such as not going near a river or near any instrument which Satan would instigate them to use for that purpose. Number 3. To make known their case without delay to some of their Christian friends in order that suitable means may be employed for their preservation and restoration to health. Finally, the dejected Christian, after all, will not believe that he is under the disease of melancholy, and will be displeased if he hears any friend so much as hint it to him. It will affirm that it is but the rational sense of his extreme misery, or of being utterly forsaken by God, and of lying under his terrible wrath. It is therefore with no small difficulty that he can be persuaded to observe the prescriptions and directions of a physician or to employ any means whatever for the cure of his bodily disease, asserting that his body is in perfect health, and that it is only his soul that is troubled. These are, for the most part, the signs of melancholy, especially when the true Christian is in that dismal case, a case to be pitied but never scorned. Let no man despise or vilify such believers. For men of all descriptions are liable to that grievous malady, high and low, learned and unlearned, religious and irreligious. Yes, and persons who have previously lived in the greatest jollity and luxury, such as have actually fallen under it as often as it pleased the Lord to make them thus feel some of the dreadful effects of his hot displeasure for their aggravated transgressions of his holy law. This book is available now for free at onthewing.org. It was put in Moby EPUB in PDF format by my friend William Gross. And the next section is called Directions to Christians Who Are Afflicted with Melancholy.